Hello! So, last time we talked a lot about Sartre, and the time before that we talked a lot about phenomenology, and as promised, it is finally time to address Kit's question and talk about German emigration. Um, so, this was a bit out of left field as far as I'm concerned. Like, I'm not exactly sure, like, um, what I was getting into when I started the research on this one. Like, history is sort of definitely uh, aligned with the sort of studies that I am engaged in, but it's not, like, the main thing I know about. Um, so once again, here is your now probably predictable caveat, namely this isn't my field and it's kind of out of my area of expertise. So a lot of this is coming off of just very recent research combined with like stuff I've picked up along the way, um, as usual. So again, like my authority should not be absolute here. Um, so anyway, to review Kit's question, Kit asked, um, Hi, Professor Kozlowski. I searched for Wittgenstein a couple of months ago in Apple Podcasts and came across your excellent podcast. If you are still accepting suggestions for topics, this one may be of interest. Many Americans descend from immigrants from 19th century Germany slash Prussia. What were these people like when they came to the U.S.? What traditions of thought did they bring from the old country? And how did these traditions influence the outlook and way of life in the U.S.? And can it be said that their descendants are still influenced by these traditions of thought? The only tradition I'm aware of is Protestantism, but I am wondering if immigrants were also influenced by others such as idealism, romanticism, etc. Thank you for your consideration and also for making your lectures available to the public. So first off, you are very welcome, Kit. Always happy to hear from folks out there, listeners who, you know, find this stuff valuable. So it's not just me, like, talking at my computer um, for hours on end. Um... But I do think this is a really interesting question, because Germany was especially active philosophically and ideologically in the 19th century. Like, that is very much the moment in time when Germany not just became a nation in the political sense, but very much sort of, like, broke away from Europe generally as far as its ideas were concerned. Like, Romanticism is very much a German invention. Um, Sturm und Drang was very much the precursor to, you know, all the great accomplishments and romanticism that we would see from France or from England or otherwise. Um, Goethe was there first, folks, so this was very much a German, very much a, a sort of Eastern European ascendant um, ideological tradition. Um, and it's only going to get more powerful from here. Like, the 19th century is the Germans coming off of Kant and developing some of the greatest philosophers in the history of the whole discipline. Um, so it's a big time of ideas for Germany. Um, so I was definitely interested in tackling this question. I had been like vaguely aware of major German-American emigration um, in the 19th century, but I, after doing some research, I've become a lot more familiar with it. Um, so, first off, to, like, give you a provisional answer to the question, um, as much as I sort of want to get into the, the meat and potatoes of, like, all right, let's talk about Hegel, and let's talk about Marxism, and let's talk about Romanticism, and let's talk about realism, and let's talk about socialism, um, all of which were huge in Germany in the 19th century at various times and moments, I definitely want to, like, preface this by saying that, in all likelihood, um these ideas weren't the driving factor in German emigration. 
um, overwhelmingly, like in the research that I've conducted in the past couple of weeks, um, it seems that most of the people running away from Germany for whatever reason were mostly motivated by economic forces, economic means. Um, and that puts those people in kind of specific categories. Um, like there are exceptions, we will talk about them momentarily, um, and those exceptions are very relevant to what we're talking about here. But like before we get into, you know, the ideas that Germans probably could pass down to Americans in their, you know, mass movement overseas, um, I want to sort of like temper that, temper our enthusiasm. Um, my inclination throughout this lecture will be to make more of it because I'm looking for examples specifically. Um, but the much more reasonable inclination of every history, history scholar that I've run into is this is a social movement, not an ideological one. Um, so that said, the main group of people, the main group of Germans who were coming to the states throughout the 19th century were poor farmers. Um, part of like the big transformation that is happening in Germany in the 19th century, like across the entire 19th century, um, is urbanization. Um, more and more focus, more and more money, more and more people are gravitating towards the major urban centers of Germany, your Frankfurts and your Berlins and um, your Hamburgs. Um, and in the process between the mechanization of agriculture and the sort of like centralization of agriculture into the hands of a few landowners, um, more and more peasants, more and more like poor farmers are being completely disenfranchised in 19th century Germany. Um, there's a lot of land, but there's not a lot of work to go around. So people are leaving in droves because they can't keep living the way that they have. The choice for most German peasants, most German farmers, at this point in history is either join the labor force, move to a city, become a factory worker, and deal with the absolutely awful conditions that that entails, or get out of Dodge, um, leave the country entirely. Um, and there were a lot of people who left the country entirely. Like, we're talking millions, and in the 19th century, that is a lot of people. Um, to sort of, like, give you a kind of big-picture idea, um, like, I, the, the book that I was primarily working with for the research on this one is The Long 19th Century, A History of Germany from 1780 to 1918 by David Blackburn. Um, which I found to be not great as like an undergraduate survey because it just assumes that you already know so much about German history and yet at the same time like is very basic. It's weird. Um, it's a very strange book as, you know, history books go in my opinion. Um, but at any rate I did find it very valuable because I did in fact know quite a bit going in and I did want something like weirdly specific about a lot of things. Um, but yeah, I can't really like recommend it across the board except, you know, if, if you are coming into the field with more than... If you're, if you're coming in like I did with scattered experience from a whole bunch of different sources and you know enough about the German landscape to like be able to fudge your way through the rest um, and you just need somebody to like connect all the dots, this is kind of the right book. Um, but if you're going in completely blind, find something else because um, I suspect this won't do it. Um, but there was a great little paragraph 
On page 192, the rising number of emigrants was the most dramatic novelty of this period. Emigration was not unknown in earlier years, Germans having settled for centuries in eastern and southeastern Europe and on the eastern seaboard of America. It was the volume that was unprecedented. The numbers began to rise in the 1840s, and the first great wave of emigration saw 1.3 million people leave the German states between 1845 and 1858. In the peak year of 1854, the total reached nearly a Order of a million. Numbers then declined before a second great wave in 1864 to 73 carried another million from Germany. The final, most intense wave began in 1880 with 860,000 leaving in the years 1880 to 5, 220,000 in, in 1881 alone. Emigration remained high until the beginning of the 1890s, after which it slowed to a trickle of no more than 20,000 to 30,000 a year. Um, so the characterization of emigration, as I understand it, is that there are these three huge waves, and there's like even a graph in the book that really demonstrates exactly how crazy it gets. Um, the first wave from 1846 to 1857, the second wave from 1864 to 73, and it's kind of the smallest of the waves, and then another big wave from 1880 to 1893. Um, so what I want to do is, in addition to sort of tackling like the three kinds of people who are going about emigrating, um, I want to sort of treat German history in the broad strokes so we can get at why the emigration is happening in these three specific periods, what these three specific periods would be carrying ideologically along with them, and how that could affect the, the U.S. when, you know, all of these people get over to American shores. Um, that's my sort of envisioning of how this lecture is going to go. Um, so again, the big emphasis that I want to drive home is that the biggest group, like the by far largest, most, you know, most important group in this whole tide of German emigration is farmers. Um, overwhelmingly throughout the, the, all three periods, you're going to see a lot of rural Germans leaving home because there's nothing left for them there. Um, and largely moving to the states. Um, and this is reflected largely in the states as well. Like a third of the German-American immigrants will then become farmers in their own right. Um, this is the moment in German, in American history of great westward expansion. And it's almost like, it's like comically cliched to have like German immigrants arrive on American shores and then immediately take off for the west with their families. Um, that isn't the entire German experience. Again, like one third of German immigrants were, were engaged in agriculture. The other two thirds stayed in the cities. Um, and whenever you like learn about German immigration in the States, you kind of understand that there's like this German belt in the 19th century, um, that they would land right around New York City. Most of them would move west into Pennsylvania. So either Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, there are a lot of people there. But then it's just west across the whole country, um, like across the Midwest. So you've got like Ohio and Michigan, um, Wisconsin and Illinois. Um, there's like apparently this German triangle around Milwaukee that's like a really big deal and a lot of German settlers there. Um, and it continues like there are German settlers all the way to the Pacific coast, like across this sort of latitude or long yes, latitudinal belt um, that stretches from Pennsylvania on the one end to Oregon on the other. Um, and like 
that's prominently where Germans ended up. But notice exactly how much space that includes, how much of the Midwest, how much of the westward movement that involved. Germans were very enticed, especially those rural poor Germans who couldn't make ends meet farming in their home country. They looked at America and said, oh, you can get land for a song out there. It would be great if we took our family, moved out west, set up a homestead, did our farming there, you know, in the wilds of America, rather than have to completely change our lifestyles or completely change our values or move to the city or become factory workers or whatever. Um, that was very much the primary motivation for a lot of Germans. And the other thing to keep in mind is that this snowballs. Um, it becomes very common in German culture for you to know somebody who's gone to the States. Like all those German emigration statistics, the millions of people that I was just mentioning in that paragraph, um, they are all of the German emigrants, like the emigrants to the US, the emigrants to France, the emigrants to the like Eastern Europe, the emigrants to Africa, the emigrants to Brazil and Algeria especially. Um, like there's a bunch of Germans leaving the country for various reasons and going all over the place, but by far the biggest place that they go is America. Like it's something like 83% of German emigrants end up in the US with Brazil as like the second highest with something like 860,000 compared to the millions um, of German American emigrants there were. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Like it's not an accident that we're talking about emigration to the US specifically. That is very much the historical phenomenon that's taking place. And again, likely because the US is engaged in exactly the kind of expansion that Germans need right now. They want to go back and farm and they can't in Europe. Like that work is drying up real quick. It's being bought out by entrepreneurs. It's becoming a giant, ugly economic mess. Um, so they're going to America, where land and the opportunity to, you know, farm it is very plentiful. Some of them succeed, they get their homesteads, they, you know, work out their families out in the Midwest. Many don't, like many just end up stuck in the cities, they end up becoming factory workers in America instead of Germany. That's the way it goes. Um, now, the second group of German emigrants that I definitely want to focus on are the tradesmen, the upcoming bourgeoisie, as it is frequently called um, at this point in history. Um, the bourgeoisie was very much the middle class that was developing and sort of growing into its own in the 19th century. Um, if you look at like the whole scope of modern history from the Renaissance on, you will see that the middle class is gradually growing in power and authority over all of this time, like over these centuries. Um, but in the 19th century, it very much becomes a cultural force in its own right. Um, the aristocracy is waning. People are no longer paying attention to all those rich nobles with all their rich noble heritages. Um, they're still powerful. You will still find them, especially in the army, especially in politics. But increasingly, it's these tradesmen, the successful entrepreneurs, um, the middle class shopkeepers and stuff um, who are sort of deciding what German culture is and who are, you know, making, spending a lot of money on the things that like surround culture and German culture, especially. Um, to some degree, this includes academics, though we're going to talk about them in a moment as a separate entity. Um, but keep in mind that like a lot of the Germans in this period who are in fact going overseas um, 
the vast majority are definitely the, the sort of rural peasants looking for a new life, but a, quite a few entrepreneurs, quite a few tradesmen, quite a few shopkeepers are sort of like either disinclined to keep up with the rapid pace of German industrialization. Maybe they don't like living in Berlin, which to be honest is like gross at this point if you're not living in the nice parts of the city. Um, a lot of them are taken off for America as well. Um, and quite a few of them will be very successful in America. Like I read at one point in my book that um, one of the leading German capitalists became the guy who invented the sugar cube. Like he was a German-American emigrant and he had a very successful career once he hit um, the States. Um, so there are quite a few of those as well. Like when I say that there are a whole bunch of people staying in the cities like Pittsburgh and Milwaukee, um, in America, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like many of them want to be in the cities. Many of them are looking at America, not as, you know, the land of opportunity where I can put down roots and have a family and, you know, start being a farmer the way that my father and my father's father was. A lot of them are coming over here saying, hmm, look at all those gullible Americans with their hunger for manufactured goods and innovation. Um, I bet I can succeed out there. I see an untapped market. Um, so in addition to, you know, all of these like farmers, you also have a whole bunch of German merchants setting up shop. Um, this is the age of the beer garden in America and most beer gardens in America were founded by German American immigrants. Um, it's a very German American phenomenon. Um, beer itself was very much like a German American emigrant thing. Anheuser-Busch, like the whole story behind that involves German emigrants coming over to America, marrying into powerful German families, and basically founding the most important beer empire in the country. Like that's the way this works. Um, so again, like those are things that the Germans are in fact bringing with them, cultural details. And I want to sort of stress that like German culture is bigger than German ideas, I want to say. Um, and the German culture definitely did move with the Germans. You'll notice, like I said, like Germans tend to concentrate, or the German American emigrants, like basically every other, you know, culture coming into America sort of founded their own communities, founded their own like miniature countries, little Germany, little Italy, little China. Um, all of these sort of communities would then bring their identity with them and frequently that identity would get like both assimilated and sort of su uh, surprisingly like um, acknowledged and elevated when it came to the states. Like you probably know of an Oktoberfest celebration in wherever you're, you live right now, if you are an American citizen, like they're fairly prominent and that's very much a German, you know, contribution. Like Americans didn't celebrate Oktoberfest until there were significant numbers of Germans hanging around, you know, like bringing their culture with them. Um, so I want to stress that, that like the German cuisine, the German food, the German, you know, celebrations and festivals, that's a lot of what the Germans did bring over to the States, um, more even than the ideas. Um, but let's talk about those ideas, because the third group that we will run into fairly frequently, and which is especially important to our question here, um, is the intellectuals, the academics. 
a lot of Germans left Germany because of political persecution for one reason or another. Um, not a lot in the sense of there were a lot of peasants, but a lot in the sense of there were, you know, of all of the socialists and Catholics and um, 48ers and young Hegelians who at one point or another are getting run out by the German establishment, many of them ended up in the States and many of them thrived. Um, Perhaps the most famous in the, the first round was Karl Schurz, who we'll, we'll come back to. Um, he had a very successful career in America. Became a senator, became Secretary of the Interior under, I want to say, Hayes. But yeah, he was Secretary of the Interior under Rutherford B. Hayes and Garfield. Um, he had a huge, awesome career um, after his initial getting kicked out of Germany. Um, so what I want to do now is sort of turn our attention from like the big picture emigration issues to a sort of big picture German history view of this process. Um, I want to talk about what's going on in Germany in the 19th century, what is causing these people to have to leave for whatever reason, because these are the big ideas, the big philosophical ideas that are getting carried across. Um, and before we can talk about 19th century Germany, we have to at least address the weirdness that is Germany in the 18th century and prior. Um, Germany wasn't a country at this point. Like, Germany will become a country, like, right around the 1860s and 1870s, largely under the guiding hand of Otto von Bismarck. Um, but unlike France or England or Spain, um, it had not established itself as a nation at this point. German, the German legacy was the Holy Roman Empire. Um, like Germany as we know it today, at least like as a land mass, was a giant pile of messy, disconnected fiefdoms and princedoms and just little squabbling like protectorates of one lord or king or prince or self-styled duke or whatever all just sort of nestled together right there in the middle of Europe without any real allegiance that united them. Um, it was a mess, in short. It was like many critics of the time thought of it as just being completely antagonistic to modernism. It was, it was anachronistic that a like, body of little principalities like this could coexist next to, you know, United France, now the power in Europe, or United Britain with its huge, like, industrial and economic, uh, like, significance and power. Um, Germany was still very disconnected. Um, and in the 19th century, that was a major problem. Like, when Napoleon is running rampant through all of Europe, Germany doesn't even pose a threat to him. At that point, the Prussian army was supposedly the scariest thing in Europe, and yet Napoleon, like, squashed it without even breaking a sweat. Um, all those Prussians with all those scary, you know, like, cavalry and, and, and uh, technological development... Napoleon's light infantry was able to run circles around them and he just squashed Germany on his way to Austria, squashed Austria and just kept on going until the Russians finally stopped them in 1812. Um, the Germans sort of had this as a wake-up call though. Like Napoleon conquering Germany was a really big deal. Not just because, you know, from Germans' perspective, but like Napoleon conquering all of Europe would radically sort of motivate 
Europeans to reevaluate and question their ideologies. Napoleon was an existential threat, in short. Like, everybody hated him, or at least all the leaders of all the other countries hated him. Um, and his legacy is weird. Like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, studied Napoleon. I, I know, like, it... Anyone who runs into Napoleon in your textbooks or studies him academically or even, like, hangs out in France and sees all the statues and monuments to his reign. Like, on the one hand, Napoleon is, you know, a tyrant. He's an awful emperor. You could definitely compare him to, you know, the 20th century monsters like Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin. But he doesn't have that reputation in Europe, like, especially not in France. Like, the French practically revere him. Um, the Arc de Triomphe is one of his major military monuments, and everybody loves it. Like, they've protected it, not torn it down. Um, Napoleon's tomb is one of the major tourist attractions in Paris, and it is weirdly constructed, so, like, you have to either look up at Napoleon or look down at Napoleon. Like, his whole body is placed on this beer, so you will have to, like, respect him no matter what position you're in. It's weird. Um... And there are statues of him all over the place, and the French kind of love him. Like, even though he very much hijacked the French Revolution movement and totally used it to his own purposes, and could absolutely be considered a tyrant and a dictator and a monster, that's really not the way he's understood. Like, he's kind of a national hero. Um, the French, you know, you, you even read literature of the period, like I'm working my way for the umpteenth time through the Count of Monte Cristo, and it's so weird how everybody is both at the same time like terrified of Napoleon and kind of proud of Napoleon and I don't know, we're very much getting off topic here. Um, but the thing is, his legacy, like his weird sort of two-fanged legacy is rooted in the way that he affected history as well. Like, yes, he did scare the living crap out of every noble in Europe at that point in time. He was absolutely just running rampant, using the revolution as his excuse to, like, depose governments and put up his, you know, family members in their place. Um, which, again, nepotism, not good. Tyranny, not good. But at the same time, he brought the democratic values of the revolution with him. Like, Napoleon, like Hitler, like Stalin, like Mussolini, used the rhetoric of the time to justify what he was doing. Um, he was supposedly a champion of democracy, even as he was putting tyrants in place everywhere that he was going. He was supposedly a champion of republic, even though he was an absolute emperor who did not, you know, d d like, have any regard for the so-called republic that was in place um but at the same time by sort of like carrying these values by having an army full of people who were talking about atheism and were talking about democracy and were talking about republicanism these ideas kind of took in the places where he was going um, when he conquered italy and instituted his quasi fake republican government in its place Italy sort of looked at itself even after Napoleon had gone and said, hey, this republic thing might not be such a bad idea. Maybe we should also be a strong nation with a strong leader, with a strong military heritage. And as a consequence, in the next like 60 years or so, both Italy and Germany will found strong nations. Partially because they're scared of France, because France is still, you know, being pretty aggressive and it is napoleon the third who is currently running france at the time so all the more reason to keep your guard up but also just because 
the French, like the French Revolution, was inspiring to a lot of people across Europe. This was a successful revolution that kicked out all of those noble bigwigs who were absolutely abusing their power. And as a consequence, Germans and Austrians and Polish and the Hungarians and the Italians and everybody were looking at their own governments and saying, hey, you know, the French could kick out their king. Why don't we do the same? So a lot of change is going to happen as a result. And in the years after Napoleon sweeping through Europe, there are going to be frequent revolutions, like all the time. Um, from, you know, it's the 1810s and 1820s all the way through 1848 and beyond in some cases. Um, and the sort of like rallying cry in many of these cases is that, you know, revolution it can be successful. Revolution can unite the people against their tyrannical regime. And there are a lot of abuses taking place at this point in time throughout Europe. Um, in Germany, where there was just this really weird collection of fiefdoms and like duchies and strange sort of, you know, cultural relationships, even within the boundaries of what we think of as the nation of Germany, that was ripe for a lot of excess and abuse and corruption as well. Um, like as much as I've stressed that this is sort of an anachronism and that most historians of the time thought it was so, my guy Blackborn apparently was very sympathetic and thought that this was actually a pretty interesting federation scheme, um, especially now that we in the 20th and 21st century are very suspicious of authoritarian or united governments. Um, but nonetheless, it was also a problem. Um, the government situation in Germany was a really tricksy one because on the one hand, you've got two big-time powers. Austria on the one hand, the Habsburgs, the old money, the old aristocracy, the, the line that has been going back all the way to the Renaissance and beyond. Um, they are absolutely the, the like model of everything that is old about Europe. Um, all of the old traditions, all of the old priorities, all of the old excesses. Um, they are every bit the royal as King Louis XVI was before they very much executed him. Um, and on the other hand, you have Prussia. And Prussia is very much the model of new Europe. It is militaristic, it is very nationalistic, it is very industrialized, or at least it's very much trying to become industrialized. It is very much a symbol of everything that's modern about what Germany is, or what Germany could become. Um, it is powerful, and it is scary. And while it does not have the sort of lineage that we saw from the Austrians, like the Hohenzollerns are very, very new by comparison, they're expanding by leaps and bounds by gradually taking over more land from people who can't defend themselves. Um, they are eating up Poland, and they are eating up, like, more and more Western German territory, um, stopping short of Denmark because Schleswig and Holstein, and we'll come back to that. Um, so on the one hand, you have these two giant powers in Germany, Prussia on the one hand, Austria on the other, but the rest of Germany 
is a mess. Like, there's a variety of different sort of power structures. There are a variety of different leadership structures. You've got all these princes and duchies and so on, some of which are cool with each other, some of which are not cool with each other, some of which have long-standing feuds that have lasted for hundreds of years. You know, you've got your Saxonies and you've got your Württembergs and you've got your Bavarias and you've got your... It's just a giant pile of craziness. Um... But in order to exist at this point, like standing in the shadow of Austria and Prussia means that it is very much an existential need that all of these little principalities, these duchies and princedoms and so on, are going to hang out together and basically be one major voting block to try and ensure that neither Austria nor Prussia gains the upper hand over one another. These guys are stuck in the middle, in short. Um, and this is the, these are frequently referred to as the third Germany. Um, so Austria and it may be the first, Prussia may be the second, and the third Germany is all these little states who are basically trying desperately to exist by making sure that anything that Prussia or Austria does that is aggressive will get rebuked by the other big power. So if Prussia takes over some new territory, if they can appeal to Austria, Austria will be like, hey, are you being aggressive? I, are, are we going to need to fight? And Prussia will be like, no, no, we were just, you know, it, it's no big deal. We'll give it back. And likewise, when Austria starts putting down revolutions in its territory and starts thinking about taking over more territory, it'll be Prussia looking over the shoulder saying, um, exactly what are you doing over there in Austria? It'll be like, nothing. Um, so in order to exist, third Germany needs to sort of strike this weird uncomfortable balance between Austria and Prussia but at the same time you have this sort of sweeping European movement of revolution um, so let's get a little more focused I've sort of tried to set the stage at this point um, but now it's time to sort of like dig into the actual philosophy and ideas that are getting kicked around um, so if we rewind a bit to the end of the 18th century, we have to talk about Goethe. Um, so the Sturm und Drang movement is the big artistic movement that comes out of Germany and sort of sets the stage for, for early Romanticism um, and will grow into full-fledged Romanticism by the time that we're talking about here with the delicate balance of Austria and Hungary and you know standing in the shadow of Napoleon III. Um, Sturm und Drang was very much a reaction to the ongoing Enlightenment philosophy and Enlightenment idealism of the time. Um, in prior lectures, as you probably remember, I talked about how like the Enlightenment, the whole 18th century like mindset was the cult of reason. Um, that reason was going to solve all of our problems, that we, if we just addressed issues like politics or religion scientifically, then we could perfect humanity and come to this sort of perfect utopian space. Um, the Romantics, and the Sturm und Drang movement especially, had no truck with that. Um, Goethe was very much disinterested in this cult of rationality, and instead he very much lampooned it. Um, by contrast, his works and the works of Schiller and the works of all of the sort of proto-romantics and the romantics to come emphasized emotion, emphasized suffering, emphasized struggle. Um, the human experience not as a rational thing, but as a raw, primal, naturalistic thing. They followed Rousseau, not Montesquieu. Um, 
And probably the quintessential tax that really characterizes what the Sturmundrang movement was all about was The Sorrows of Young Werther, which is this little novella about a college student who falls madly in love with this woman who is already engaged to somebody else. And when he confronts her about this, she's like, dude, no, this actually looks like a pretty good deal. I'm going to totally go through with this marriage. So he's like, well, I guess I'll die then. And he kills himself. Um, and this actually became such a big deal in Germany that like college students left and right were committing suicide in this mass movement of virtuism um, where, you know, all of these kids were just like running away with this text so you know here's our first moral for today's lesson don't commit suicide because of a book you read but the thing about the Strumundrang movement and the romantic movement generally is that it very much tied into this sort of revolutionary ideology like hegel would write his big text the phenomenology of spirit in this kind of light um it would also be sort of a raw examination of sort of human nature as opposed to you know kantian idealism um and it was very much understood to be in the spirit of romanticism um and romanticism emphasized you know suffering for your ideas like dying for your ideas being willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of truth beauty and so on um, and this was very much anathema to the ruling governments of the time. Now, this changes because, you know, all art movements, as they become more and more sort of mainstream, will gradually get picked up by these governments. And like the day would come in the 50s and 60s, um, 1850s and 1860s, uh, when German romanticism was considered the national art form and it was all these newfangled realists who everybody was upset about and you know that's just the way these things work um you will see this pattern a lot if you study art history um but at least in the early part of the 19th century this was very much the the movement underlying all of these revolutions the movement underlying all of these big pushes to you know get like get one's rights back to fight for one's dignity and fight for one's livelihood um which of course brings us to the economic situation like we've got to talk about the industrial revolution oh my gosh we've got to talk about everything history is so difficult Ugh, i hate it there's so much context um but that's the other key to this whole situation like the industrial revolution had been well underway throughout the 18th century especially in england and france and the sort of more fully developed nations at this point in time germany was very much a latecomer to this party because again it was fractured like it's all over the place there are all these different duchies all with different priorities and while the prussians are just trying to get their foot out the door for industrialization it kind of isn't working at this point because not everybody is on the same page um but as more and more industrialization occurs as prussia is sort of getting their stuff together in the wake of napoleon as more and more urban centers are cropping up throughout germany at this point like under the messy confederation um it's very much awful for the people at the bottom of the ladder like it's great for all those bourgeois um landowners and capitalists who are like making money hand over fists you know exploiting the shit out of the worker um but 
for the worker, it's just, you know, you gave up work, working your own land for, you know, your own wages, your own livelihood, to now you are employed by this guy who does not care at all about your livelihood. You will spend, like, 100, 120 hours a week slaving away at, like, a job that anyone could do you are eminently replaceable um and the best you can hope for is that you don't like destroy yourself in 30 years to the point that like you just die a broken just like wasted person in a crappy slum apartment um that's that's your life congratulations and yeah it sucks um, makes whatever you're doing right now, like retail or whatever, probably look a lot better. Um, but at any rate, this obviously sucked enough that a lot of people were angry about it. Um, and one of the major motivating factors to this revolutionary spirit, along with the sort of like nationalism that the Prussians are fostering and the, the sort of ideological um, imports of napoleon and the whole romantic movement in general is that people are like getting mad and breaking factories and setting fire to things and rebelling against the government on a fairly regular basis um now the government unsurprisingly doesn't tolerate this very much um they are putting these things down as quickly as they spring up um but this combination of factors will not hold and eventually things do blow up um so that brings us to the first moment of our giant in immigration project here, um, the Revolution of 1848. Um, so the Revolution of 1848 is kind of a series of revolutions, like everybody is revolting in 80, 1848. Um, and again, there's a combination of factors here. One of the things that Blackburn stresses is that it's largely about communication technology. Congratulations, everyone. We've invented the telegram and the telegraph. So as a result, like, we can get information from place to place really fast. The good news is that it's really easy to make investments on the world market. And we can, like, make our or, or uh, withhold our investments based on crazy political developments that are taking place. The downside is that this technology is pretty readily available, so everybody is using it. And apparently in 1848, when the French government gets overthrown again, um, all the German peasants and all the Austrian peasants and all the Belgian peasants and all the British and so on and so forth all across Europe all get word of this and they're like, you know what? They're right. They should totally take down their government and we should do the same. And they do. And in, like, this one year, there's something like two dozen revolutions across Europe. And Germany is one of the big ones. Um, all of these peasants, all of these workers, all of these disaffected individuals march on the government centers, on Berlin, on Vienna. And they basically demand their rights. Um, and the nobles are running scared. Like, they're, they're just disappearing from the cities or getting, like, captured and you know, contained and basically imprisoned in their own homes and palaces. It turns real ugly real fast. Um, and I should mention that the leaders of this popular movement, as much as it is very much motivated by the peasants, as much as it is sort of picking up and carrying off the workers as well, sort of the engineers behind it are, shocker, the liberal academics. Um, all those young Hegelians who had been reading Hegel for now uh, over a generation 
have kind of come to the conclusion that Hegel very much said that the whole process of history and the progress of history was frequently motivated by conflict. We talked about that a good bit in our phenomenology lecture. That whole master and slave dynamic is very popular at this point. Um, and P.S., in 1848, one of the major architects, one of the guys in the crowd, is Karl Marx. And 1848 will be the year that he publishes the Communist Manifesto. So keep that in the back of your mind. We'll be coming back to that one. Now, the government had been real leery of the young Hegelians for a while. Um, all of these liberal ideas about democracy and popular sovereignty didn't sit well with all those big fancy aristocrats with their conviction that God had given them their position and they wanted to stay in it. Um, but this very much snowballed in 1848 because there were a lot of discontents for a lot of different reasons. Um, typically the peasants aren't terribly interested in popular sovereignty versus like divine monarchic sovereignty, um, but they are really mad because all those noble jerks are still reserving huge swaths of territory for hunting and not letting any peasants hunt there. So they're pissed off about that. Um, the workers and the tradesmen are pissed off because of their situation. They are getting frequently ruled out by, you know, government excesses and corruption and so on. So everybody's mad. And the solution to this from the aristocratic standpoint is divide and conquer. Um, if they can break up this erstwhile coalition, which is made of a whole bunch of different groups of people with a whole bunch of different grievances, then they can take it piecemeal and one at a time get rid of them. So one of the first things they do in late 1848 is they announce that noble privileges are revoked. Um, you can no longer reserve whole acreages of territory to just hunting. Um, that territory has to be used for the peasants as well. And as soon as the peasants hear this, they all just go home. Like, as soon as they get what they want, they're done. And this is one of the few things that actually sticks in the 1848 revolution. They never turn that one again because the nobles are smart enough not to make the same mistake twice. But once the millions of peasants, the millions of rural Germans who have been ousted from their homes for whatever reason, go back and just stop participating in the revolution, well, now it's way more manageable. And it's pretty soon after that that the military shows up and all of a sudden the workers and the craftsmen are turning tail and now it's just all those liberals, all those crazy academics who do in fact get to the point that they like found a constitution and they're demanding that like the, the leaders agree to recognize their constitution and at that point like they're like and we also want frederick wilhelm the current holy roman emperor ish thing to be our president and prime minister and the guy's like ah, pass and then the whole thing just falls apart um but surprise the government is really unhappy about this so they spend a lot of time chasing after these major ideologues and trying to track them down and kill them which brings us again to our first big period of immigration. Um, like I said, the first major period of, em of emigration in Germany, especially to the States, is 1846 to 1857. And you'll notice that 1848 and 1849, the years of the revolution, fit nicely into the beginning of this. Um, now, the big period of emigration started beforehand. 
again, the situation was really, really bad in the early 40s. Um, but one of the things that you'll notice about these big emigration periods is that they don't happen when things are at their worst. They happen when things recover from their worst. Um, when people have enough money to pay off their debts and take off, they do. Um, so again, a lot of these people are craftsmen and peasants, but you'll notice that a lot of these people are also disaffected young Hegelians and what are known as the Fortiators. Um, people who participated in the revolution of 48, who published something particularly damning, who got the government mad at them, and now they have to run for their lives. Um, and a lot of these sort of political socialists, these political republicans, these nationalists, um, because that's woven in here too. They're like, there's a whole bunch of people united under the banner of we need one nation Germany um, rather than all of this factional squabbling. Um, a lot of these folks take off because they're now scared that the real authorities are going to come down on them now that the revolution has failed. Um, so that is the first ideological movement that is very much going to show up in the States as a consequence. Um, but I want to hesitate before, you know, making too much of it. Um, the fact of the matter is, I think the ideology is kind of backwards here. It's not so much that Germans brought their ideas with them to the States. It's that the States were particularly amenable to those ideas. And that's why the Germans went there in the first place. Um, like take romanticism, for example. Um, romanticism is very much a thing sort of conceived and brought about by the Germans. The Germans love their romantic artists. It's a very big motivation for all this revolutionary activity. Um, but romanticism has already spread. Like, it's 1848. This is after, you know, Byron has been writing and, and like, contemporaneous with Wordsworth and Tennyson and so on. Um, the French romantics are a big deal already. The, the American romantics are a big deal already. Like, Irving was publishing in the 20s. The Scarlet Letter, which is probably, like, the paradigmatic American romantic text, was published in 1850, like, a couple years after 1848. Um this movement was already well in place. Um, so the Germans weren't so much bringing romanticism with them, they were going to America because it was friendly to romantic ideals anyway, and all of these revolutionaries see kindred spirits in the Americans. Um, and that kind of brings us back to Karl Schurz. Karl Schurz was, in fact, a 48er. Um, he was a political, like, political ideologue in the whole revolutionary moment. He was a major liberal professor who had big, scary ideas. He went to bat for the revolution, lost, got run out, fled to France and then England and then America, and proceeded to be an American. He joined the Union Army in the Civil War, distinguished himself as a general, wrote a whole bunch of papers like against slavery, and ended up being the Secretary of the Interior, where, P.S., he turned out to be kind of a really decent guy. Um, he actually, like, as Secretary of the Interior, he ended up having a lot to do with the questions at this point in America about what to do about the Native American population. Um, which that's a whole nother mess in its own right. But one of the political strategies that was currently ongoing was they were trying to move the Department for Native American Affairs, in short, into the Department of War. 
Um, which, if that isn't obvious, that means that they're very much thinking of the natives as like an actual enemy to be exterminated from the country. Um, Schertz was instrumental in keeping the department in the Secretary of the Interior's purview, treating it as though that is a national concern, a domestic concern, not an enemy to be destroyed. Now, he was engaged in resettlement, but it was resettlement as opposed to extermination. He frequently fought against people who were, like, oppressing and, and preventing the natives from, from sort of doing their own thing. So, all in all, Schertz turns out to be, like, on par pretty decent by 19th century standards. Um, so, cool dude. Um, but it's kind of hard to say how much of that is German liberal idealism. Like, as much as it's kind of tempting to draw a line there and be like ah his you know dem democratic ideals his you know love of humanity which he expressed in the 48 revolution is now coming to fruition in this sort of like american understanding of like native affairs it's probably not that simple like it might be the case but i would need to do way more research to be able to say for sure um and that's what i want to stress here like these ideas and these great political thinkers and these liberal like uh, activists and stuff, they did come over to the States and they brought their ideas with them. But the Americans were, on the whole, dealing with a lot of the same ideas and dealing with a lot of the same sort of problems. This wasn't new in short. Like the culture is new. The increased popularity of German festivals and the increased popularity of German cuisine, like that's something that is in fact coming over and, you know, taking hold, being something new. Um, but, you know, all of these thinkers who are crying for German nationalism, like we need to unite as one nation and fight against France and fight against England and, you know, seize our German identity. Um, as much as that's a big thing in these revolutionary movements, it doesn't really have an outlet in America unless you want to draw a line between, you know, preserving the Union at, during the Civil War and nationhood as the Germans see it. But again, it's very different. Um, and while it is grounded in, like, Hegelian promises that, like, the German spirit was going to, you know, bring about utopia on Earth, kind of hard to see that translating to the United States except as another different utopian spirit. Um, so this is a big idea that does make its way to America, but it was kind of already there. It was kind of already in motion. It's hard to see it as like German immigrants are just carrying their ideas with them and introducing them to fertile ground where it had not been seen before. Now, in the aftermath of the 48 revolution, things aren't great in Germany. Like, they kind of go back to normal and they kind of don't. Um, again, this is like a huge period of emigration. Like, this is arguably the biggest, at least, you know, per capita. Um, between 1846 and 1857, you've got like literally millions of Germans hoofing it for the states and elsewhere. Um, but it should be emphasized that during this period, like, this is very much the the people who are in charge kind of circling the wagons um they recognize that they are under attack from all of these you know ideologists all of these people crying for nationhood all of these liberal academics arguing for popular sovereignty and socialist principles um and they're kind of pushing back against it like many of the sort of 
new changes that occurred during 1848 and 1849 are in fact rolled back. Um, it's like, okay, well, the crisis is over, so we can go back to being assholes now. Um, and for the most part, that's how it happens. But things are still boiling up. Like, the fact of the matter is, it's the whole Prussia, Austria, Third Germany thing is not tenable at this point. Like, there are a lot of ways that this could go, um, but how it is now just isn't working. Um, which, of course is when Otto von Bismarck shows up in the early 60s. Um, now, the second big emigration movement takes place like right smack in the middle of Bismarck's big push to sort of unite Germany under the Prussian banner, um, which P.S. is how this is going to go down. Like, Otto von Bismarck over the next 10 years, ultimately concluding, and we, most historians usually talk about like 1871 is the moment where like the Treaty of Versailles is signed and all of a sudden Germany is one thing now. Um, Bismarck was an eminent, incredible politician. Like, I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Um, and he managed to radically change the way that German politics worked in the 60s and 70s. Um, so up until this point, like, again, the loose confederation of folks who shows up in 1848 demanding reform, that consists of a lot of people who are convinced that German nationalism is an important priority for them. They want one state, not this whole, like, loose confederation of a bunch of different people. You've got all these angry peasants who have their own ideas in mind. You've got a bunch of disgruntled workers sick and tired of their working conditions. Bismarck sneakily starts breaking this up um this is all liberal nonsense as far as bismarck is concerned but the nationalism he can extract so bismarck takes the national movement and makes it a conservative thing um he basically aligns a bunch of the bourgeoisie the craftsmen the peasants and some of the and a lot of those liberals who are crying for nationalism um, and separates it from the socialist ideas. Like, forget the whole popular sovereignty thing, we're gonna have one nation, but it's gonna be one nation under an emperor who is not, like, popularly elected, but who inherits their title from, like, again, bloodline. Um, so by creating what he calls the National Liberal Party, um, he ends up basically confusing all those liberals who were crying about, you know, we want both nationalism and popular sovereignty, and now you've got liberals at each other's throats, which is makes them much more convenient to manipulate as far as Bismarck is concerned. Um, so between that and a series of crazy political happenings, namely like Bismarck gets very uppity with Austria and there's a German civil war and Prussia like unites the entirety of North Germany against Austria and its loose confederation in the south. Meanwhile Austria is putting down revolutions in Hungary and other like parts of its holdings and then all of a sudden the Schleswig-Holstein thing is a big deal and now you know Bismarck just like takes it and says it's mine and you know everybody's like hooray Germany because nationalism and then Bismarck manages to orchestrate a war with France, which he thoroughly wins, both deposing Napoleon III because he freaking captures him, like, I don't even know, um, and because he ultimately gets all of Germany, with the exception of Austria, united against the common enemy of France. 
surprise, it's one Germany, and it, the Austrians have been eliminated from it altogether. So the Prussians are running the show. It is a Prussian-led Germany at this point. Now, again, the emigration like boom between 1864 and 1873 is kind of like a mirror of what's going on with Bismarck's gradually increasing um, political scheme. Like, Bismarck starts arguably in, like, 60 to 62, and ultimately the Treaty of Versailles is 1871, and then there are going to be a whole bunch of, like, big deal reforms and changes, like making the Chamber of Commerce and making a bank and a post office and stuff in the 70s. Um, but you'll, it's kind of easy to say, ah, so all of these people were leaving because they hated Bismarck. No, they really didn't. Like, the fact of the matter is, the 1864 movement is another one of those lag times because of the economic situation. Again, all of the land is being consolidated, all the money is being consolidated. There are a lot of families and peasants who are very disenfranchised, not with the national movement, like they are happy to be Germans, um, but they're very unhappy with how they are being treated. So there probably are a bunch of people who are leaving because Bismarck is making no secret of the fact that he is an antagonist to the socialists um, and the left liberals um, as opposed to these new right-wing nationalist liberals. Um, Bismarck is absolutely encouraging the nationalist side of Germany and absolutely fighting tooth and claw um, against the liberal side, the socialist side. Um, but the other thing that we should emphasize is that Bismarck is also not a friend to a lot of the minorities who were hanging around in Germany at the time. Um, you'll notice in, in Kit's question, he specifically mentioned the Protestants. Like, did America, like, did the German emigrants bring a lot of Protestantism over with them? And this is just another case of, well, you know, America was already Protestant then. Like, the Puritans were all Protestants. The, the U.S. was very much a Protestant nation. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, one of Bismarck's various antagonists and one of the major minorities that is hanging around Germany at this time are the Catholics. Yes, you don't think of the German Catholics, but there actually is a sizable Catholic minority, like especially in places like Austria, where there's been an entrenched power structure forever. And a lot of those little third German nation states, they very frequently are Catholic because they were always independent. It didn't matter. Like Lutherism or whatever didn't take there. So now they are, you know, little Catholic holdouts in the middle of this giant mess. And as Germany is getting unified, Bismarck's getting uppity about the Catholics, and the Catholics and the Socialists are both taking off for American shores. So weirdly, if anything, I would say that there's probably a greater influx of German Catholics affecting the culture in the U.S. than there are German Protestants affecting the culture, because the German Protestant culture is very much already a thing. Um, or rather, the American Protestant culture is already very much a thing. Um, so, again, like, the 19th century is full of this sort of emigration to the U.S. Like, after Germany, the Irish are also emigrating in great quantities to America. And P.S. the Irish are also super Catholic. Um, in fact, this is the moment when a lot of Americans are going to have to sort of deal with this influx of Catholicism and sort of work around this um, challenge to the Protestant majority that has largely been running the show for, you know, 
a hundred years at this point. Um, and shocker, this is when the KKK is starting at the same time. And you'll remember if you know anything about the KKK that not only do they hate black people cause civil war, but they also hate Catholics and Jews. Um, the movement, the sort of reactionary nationalism in the U.S. kind of looks a lot like reactionary nationalism in Germany. Um, it's anything other than what was here first, we don't want, we want to get rid of. Whoever is not in the majority, they want out altogether. So rather than say, you know, German Protestantism is a major influence on, you know, the development of American identity in the 19th century, I would go so far as to say that German Catholicism probably had as much or more um, to do with it. Like, again, you think of the Italians and the, the Irish as being the major contributors of Catholicism to American identity at this point, but the Germans were there too. Um, which brings us to the 70s in Germany. And this is where that racism and nationalism gets rather out of hand. Blackburn calls it chauvinism, which I suppose is technically correct, but seems a little academic um, because we usually think of chauvinists as being a sexist thing. And there was that as well, for sure. Um, but in the 70s, there were a series of sort of activities directed against the undesirable communities in Germany um, that get really messy and sort of define the way that things are going. Um, see, in 73, there was a Great Depression. Um, like huge economic downturn across all of Europe, all of these markets crash, and Germany, which has been very reliant on these markets as it's been increasingly ramping up its industrialization over the last like few decades, is also very much feeling the, the brunt of that. Um, and you'll notice that that big push, that big second movement of emigration was 1864 to 1873, it stops, like it's all gone in 1873 because nobody is rich enough to leave anymore. Um, so we're gonna have to wait until 1880 when when things are back on their feet that for a new bubble of emigration to occur. Um, but things get bad for the minorities in the 70s at, in the wake of the 1873 crash. Um, first, there is the culture conf where the current leadership and Bismarck especially is basically waging an ideological war against Pope Pius um, in Rome. And part of this is because Pius just announced that he is infallible as the Pope when he claims papal infallibility. Fun fact, the whole doctrine of papal infallibility did not actually transpire until the late 19th century. Um, and everyone got freaking mad about it, including Bismarck. So all of a sudden, all those Catholics in Germany are very much getting discriminated against. Um, not because they're perceived to be, well, you know, some of it is ideological. Some of it is, you know, Bismarck saying that he's not gonna tolerate pious and like the people just sort of get caught up with this, remember, Bismarck is like the poster boy for German nationalism at this point. So the nationalists increasingly see themselves as Protestant nationalists, not Catholics, with their you know heretical doctrines and their, their over-authoritarian um, government structure. Um, but this isn't just the Catholics either. Like shortly after this, Bismarck bans socialism from the Reichstag. Um, he basically like rules out any socialist from participating in the government 
which means that there are a bunch of disgruntled socialists hanging around as well. And again, this is not surprising for Bismarck. He has always shown antagonism. And lastly, of course, there's anti-Semitism. Um, and in fact, anti-Semitism is coined during this particular moment in German history. Um, there has always been discrimination against the Jews throughout the 19th century in Germany. Um, the Jews actually were enfranchised after the 1848 um, revolution. Like, they actually won the right to vote. They were emancipated, so to speak, um, although that was very, very limited. Um, but there were a lot of people who were very much against that uh, in, in the earlier stages um, of the revolution. Like, even within the, the group of revolutionaries, there were a lot of, lot of pushback against the idea that the Jews should also receive rights, should also receive the benefits of whatever this revolution was going to accomplish. Um, and the argument at that point was that they were going to corrupt things, that their Judaism was going to pervert proper German values and destroy German ideals. Um, when in fact, the, the fact of the matter was that the Jews were very much assimilating, like there was very much a great deal of pride, like German nationalism among the Jewish community. They were happy to be German Jews. Um, they saw themselves as having their own unique identity, both as Germans and as Jews, to the point that like some German Jews were even wearing like Friedrich Wilhelm mustaches, like they were happy to, you know, cut off their ringlets and stop sort of keeping kosher and instead just sort of like become part of this big community so that in the 70s there was this whole big movement where it's like we need to get rid of the jews because you can't tell where they are which just the hypocrisy of racism is never going to fail to you know both disgust and baffle me um suffice it to say that in the 70s, there was a lot of movement against these minorities, that as nationalism was ascendant, so was this chauvinism that Blackburn was talking about, this sort of arbitrary discrimination against people who did not fit the popular mold, whether it is socialists for their ideology, Catholics for their religion, or Jews for their cultural identity. Um, and it wasn't just limited to that either. Like this is also where the sort of class striations are really coming into play. Um, like there is a very distinct underclass and the proletariat, all those workers who are you know barely able to like keep themselves fed and healthy. Then the bourgeoisie separated into sort of like the upper and lower parts, where the lower parts are like factory uh, managers who are sort of aspiring to education and self-sufficiency and you know entrepreneurial values. And then of course you've still got your aristocracy hanging on, hanging on at the top for dear life at this point. Um, who are still a major disproportionately powerful force in the you know government, the military, the bureaucracy, and so on. Um, now, the, the two things that I should stress, though, um, because 1880 is the third big movement, like the third big emigration bubble of Germans heading to America. Um, at this point, the, the population of the emigrants is still rooted in the same, like, peasant, proletariat, bourgeois, entrepreneur, um, and German liberal ideologist 
sort of divide, but at the same time, it's increasingly moving over towards an industrialized, urbanized world. Um, at this point, there are a lot more workers, like factory workers, employees, people who have spent their entire lives working in the city who are moving to the U.S. rather than rural agricultural workers. Like, again, the families moving to, you know, new American farmland is still like the dominant motivation is still sort of the biggest group. Um, but they are diminishing in favor of factory workers and, again, this proletariat of the cities um, who are increasingly going to American cities because they, can, they think they can eke out a better existence there. But there are two things I want to stress about this sort of last movement that sort of encapsulates everything that has been going on here and what probably is being contributed quietly or not so quietly to the American ideological mix. Um, and the first thing I want to stress is socialism. Um, socialism in 1880 has sort of is gradually recovering its power after Bismarck so thoroughly disenfranchised them. Um, it's still tough being a socialist. Don't want to pretend like that's not the case. Um, but increasingly, this German Socialist Party has become the most powerful political party in the German Reichstag at this point. Um, like, despite being banned, now it's something like one third of German citizens are voting socialist. Um, like, it is primarily in the cities, like Berlin especially, um, but increasingly the, like, the groundswell is toward a bunch of Germans recognizing that the workers are being exploited and taken advantage of, and they want their rights. And that's one of the things that I think is not necessarily brand new, because this motivation is also taking place in the States, but the German tide of immigration in the second two bubbles between 64 and 73 and 80 to 93, I suspect that they are going to very much help fan the flames of German, of American socialism as well. Um, and let me put a caveat on this first, because I always feel obliged to do this. Like, welcome back to Professor Kozlowski's socialist apology pinko lecture. Um, but this is not like Nazis. Um, in the same way that Bismarck very much co-opted nationalism and made it a conservative thing, the Nazis very much co-opted socialism and made it whatever the hell they wanted to. Um, when I'm talking about socialism, what I'm talking about is workers' rights. Um, I'm talking about a government that is rooted not in aristocratic ideals, um, not in plutocratic ideals, not in bloodline or money or whatever, but a government rooted in popular sovereignty. Um, the majority should rule. Um, and this should not come as a surprise to Americans. We should all look at that and be like, that's not socialism, that's democracy. And that's true. Um, socialism is the side of it that emphasizes individual worth. Socialism says people have rights. People should not be exploited. People are more important than money. Um, so socialism is not, you know, dictators running rampant under swastikas. Socialism is labor unions having more power. Socialism is people not being exploited for, you know, 100-hour workdays. Socialism is not allowing child labor law or child labor um, and instead 
passing child labor laws to prevent like exploitation of children, women, etc. Um, that's what socialism is at this moment in history. Um, and I think as much as there have been trade unions and there has been sort of a gradual groundswell in America for unions, I tend to think that the 19th century in America was a lot of capitalists running very rampant and not having a lot of checks. Um, like the few unions that are sort of cropping up are very much, you know, fought on the other hand by the Pinkertons, um, which also develop in the 19th century in America. And the Pinkertons, in addition to being sort of like the predecessors to both the FBI on one hand and like the private investigation thing on the other hand, are a bunch of assholes who like will break up trade unions by shooting everyone. Um, they are monsters for a lot of the 19th century. Um, and I think the Germans, by leaving Germany and coming to America in great numbers, would in general, in all likelihood, tend to take the worker's side on this one. They are giving ammunition to the socialists. Um, they are giving ammunition to the people who want to make a union, who want to protect their rights, who want to you know, be able to hold something over their employers. The Germans, on the whole, I suspect, are strikers not scabs. Um, and obviously this is a broad generalization. It should not be like, it is one part speculation, one part generalization and should be taken as such. Um, but I do think if there is like one ideological constant that we can say, yes, the Germans brought this and yes, it's a major contributing factor and yes, it changes the direction of American idealism, it's probably Marxism, like it's probably socialism. It's probably acknowledging that, you know, labor unions and trade unions are important to a healthy economy. Um, so take that as you will, since I imagine many of my listeners are uh, politically opposed to this particular ideology or otherwise. Um, now, the other thing that I'm tempted to sort of raise as a German idealistic sort of like impetus is nationalism, which may seem kind of weird, like and opposed um, to the whole um, socialist thing that I was just talking about. Um, but I want to stress that as well. Like we are at, here in 1882, 1893, this big last emigration push from Germany, the big thing on the horizon like what everyone should be thinking about in the back of their minds is we are very much getting close to world war one at this point in time and one of the major major ideological factors going into world war one as a thing is nationalism um german nationalism especially like german nationalism is going to build up to just feverish pace by 1912 um, like it's going to be huge and possibly the single most important force in what will ultimately claim the lives of literally millions of German citizens as well as millions of Europeans across the board. Um, and United the United States, while its nationalism isn't as pronounced in the 19th century, like it is there, it's very different from the Germans because it's sort of framed differently. The Germans see their national identity in contrast with 
existential threats. They have the French on the one side, the British on the other, and the Russians and the you know Austrians. The Germans have to understand who they are in the context of all of these powers around them who are on the one hand older than the Germans are. The Prussians were only able to unify the nation in 1871, so these guys are still the new kids on the block. And also in contrast to what these powers can do. Um, like the Brits have colonies in India and in Africa and in the States and all over the place. And the French have colonies and the, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish have colonies. The Germans showed up late, so they don't have anything. Like they, they managed to get a little bit of imperialism, but not a whole lot by comparison. And it's not nearly as effective as those old colonies. Like they get some holdings in Africa and they turn up nothing. Um, the Germans end up having a lot more profit from just trade than actual conquest. And the Germans are feeling really grumpy about this. Um, and as a consequence, they see themselves in the context of we are a great power that needs to express itself, um, which may very well end up in like Germans conquering Poland and trying to, you know, carve out a foothold in the Balkans and falling into the trap um, of, you know, all of the alliances and ententes um, of the early 20th century. By contrast, the United States' nationalism is very much defined in contrast to what the United States is becoming. Like a big nationalist movement like the KKK isn't mad at like Canadians. Like, yeah, that was a thing in the very early 19th century. But the U.S. and Canada have been pretty quiet, like, for a while. Furthermore, the U.S. has plenty of imperialistic holdings. Like, they can totally colonize, you know, the Caribbean and some of the Pacific. Like, nobody seems to have a problem with that because they're so far away. Um, the United States is itself, like, the product of colonialism, and it becomes a colonial power in its own right, which is, of course, where you get the Spanish-American War and fighting over Cuba and all that splendid little nonsense. Um... The Americans instead see nationalism in terms of threats from within. Um, so where the Germans see their identity in contrast with the Slavs on the one hand and the European powers on the other, the Americans see their nationalism in terms of we are not Catholic, we are not Jewish, we are not black. Um, and when the Germans show up, as much as many of them are coming over with these sort of socialist ideals, very much rooted in place and sort of encouraging what I suspect um, is a greater focus on unionism and sort of like American socialism, so to speak. Um, the other side I suspect is that they're also bringing in their ideas that, you know, Protestants should rule and Catholics and Jews suck. Now, the Germans aren't at all the only people who are practicing anti-Semites in the late 19th and early 20th century. Like the Blackburn emphasized that like the French and the British are, if anything, way worse. Um, and Russian policies are just grotesque by contrast. Um, like he stresses at one point that, you know, having seen what happens to Germany in the, in the 40s and, or the 30s through the 50s and the whole Holocaust thing, like every historian in the books has been combing through German 19th century and early 20th century history looking for evidence that like this anti-Semitism was going to blow out of proportion. And the fact of the matter is it really isn't there. 
Um, like, yeah, it was in the speeches. Everybody could get free political points by taking pot shots at the Jews. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, there was wide scale discrimination. Like there's an example of like a couple of college kids letting a bunch of rats loose in a Jewish owned department store. Like that's as close as it gets. Meanwhile, the Russians are like systematically executing Jews at one point. Like it's wildly different. Um, so I don't want to say that like Germans are the sole contribution to anti-Semitism in the United States, not by a long shot, but I do think that they are also fanning the flames there. Um, German nationalist identity likely feeds into American nationalism towards the end of the 19th century and the 20th century. Um, just as there is this big push in the 19th century for the Americans to sort of assert themselves over, you know, the Catholic Mexico and the, the Native American population and, you know, the, the undesirable, so to speak, like entities in their own borders, be it, you know, the black slaves now that they are emancipated or whoever, um, the Germans likely contributed to a sense of national identity leading into the 20th century, a pride of place. The US asserting itself as a world power, recognizing that it was economically potent, especially in comparison to like the waning fortunes of France and, and uh, England, and a sort of American identity tied to its industrial and military prowess. That's a very German thing. Um, like it's a very German thing at this moment in history, I should specify. Like in the 19th century, the nationalist movement and the militarist movement are very much one and the same thing. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that bleeds over to American politics and ideology as well. So to wrap up, because we've been going way too long, um, if there is an answer to this question, it is not a simple one. Like I suspect that a lot of the hallmarks of German ideology were already very rooted in American thinking long before the emigrants were showing up. Like romanticism and like the earliest forms of socialism, probably all there. Um, the, dip, the three different movements of Germans over to the States, like the big push after the 48 um, revolution and all the 48ers who came to America, the, the big push again in the, the late 60s and early 70s under Bismarck's administration, and then again in the 80s and early 90s. The motivation there is on the one hand, they are the persecuted, they are the Catholics and the Jews who are getting kicked out and sort of like relocated. Um, they are also there not to become ideologues, like they're also there primarily to just stake out land and look for economic prosperity in a place where that is possible. Um, but insofar as there are ideological movements that are coming over, I imagine the two big ones are socialism and nationalism, because those are the big two movements in Germany at the moment. Those are the big two ideas that are that the Germans are wrestling with throughout the 19th century. Um, the 48ers were all nationalists looking to be asserted in the actual government of the time. So it makes sense that they would bring their nationalism with them. Um, and likewise, as the worker is getting more and more exploited with fewer and fewer outlets, as the, de the Socialist Party is getting more and more speed um, in the latter part of the 19th century, I imagine that a lot of the emigrants from Germany are bringing that socialist ideology with them. Um, so those are the two poles that I tend to think are going to get sort of blown up by the German emigrating forces. Um, but again, a lot of that is speculative. Like these are 
big ideas, big sweep of history stuff, and some broad generalizations on my part. So take them with a grain of salt. Um, but that's as good as an, as, of an answer as I've got. Um, going forward, so I have been saying for a while on my podcast slash lecture thing that it was entirely possible that I was going to pick up a fourth class this semester and possibly have a whole battery of lectures to record. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. I got tapped to do General Humanities 2 over at Montclair, which means this lecture will be rather quickly followed up with a whole bunch of lectures from my General Humanities class. Um, General Humanities is a class I've taught ever since I was a teacher. Like, it was the first class Montclair tapped me to do. It's only been recently that I've been doing a lot of mythology and not so much General Humanities. Um, but here is my opportunity to jump back into it and do some recordings. Um, so the general humanities class at Montclair is largely composed of me talking about a lot of literature in the modern period. Um, it is weirdly structured and it will be especially weird translated to the podcast because I imagine I'll be recording quite a few videos as well because I do quite a bit of art history. Um, the general humanities class is structured as a survey and it's a broad survey of all of the humanities. Um, so there'll be music, there'll be art, there'll be literature, you name it, we'll do all of those things. Um, I will record the syllabus lecture probably later today, in which case it'll probably be up by the time that you see this. Feel free to listen to it for a better sense of what we're going to be doing. But if you have any interest in listening to me talking about Faustian literature, like Marlowe's Dr. Faustus or Goethe's Faust or any of that fun stuff, stay tuned. There will be more to come. Um, I do hope to record my lecture on Heidegger at some point, but it probably will be a while because I'm going to be focusing on the General Humanities course primarily for a while and because I really do want to actually like review Heidegger seriously before I take a stab at the lecture, um, which means going back to being in time, going back to the, the introduction to metaphysics, going back to all the collections that I've got from my college days. Um, and like getting back into the Heideggerian mindset. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna do one or two or more lectures on Heidegger. I think he warrants more than one, um, but whatever, we'll, we'll figure that out. At any rate, stay tuned and listen to some crazy stuff about like history and art and literature and all sorts of crazy stuff um, in the weeks to come. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>